Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Is here. Oh, I'm sorry. So, Got it. why don't we uh, talk okay. about that later? Yes. Okay, <laughs> later. I'll introduce you to Dr. George Dunstan, who uh, is no stranger to the group, but we have a number of new group members who may not know Dr. Dunstan. Dr. Dunstan has been working at Howard and actually along with me since uh, uh, longer than she would want me to relate, but I can tell you, it's, we started working together in the 70s. Yeah. So, so, so that, that tells you a lot about how long we've been working together. Uh, and she has done an incredible, outstanding work as the uh, founder of uh, gen- genomics at Howard, at Howard University, as well as the uh, uh, doing some great work, which she'll talk to you about in terms of soul genomics, a term that she has uh, coined and has used to identify how we can communicate with the Father above. But I don't want to steal her thunder. She's someone who's, who has uh, won so many honors and awards and has been uh, featured in so many uh, areas, has done TED Talks and you name it. Uh, Georgia May Dunstan has done it. And so I wanted to talk today about uh, herself and what she wants to talk about relative to soul genomics. Georgia May Dunstan, my friend, colleague, and uh, great supporter. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Callender. <laughs> is uh, thank you for the invitation to meet with the group. And thanks to the group, it's good to see you guys. Carol, John, uh, it's good to see you all, Janice and what have you. When Clive told me that you guys were meeting on Zoom and that uh, he was going to uh, speak to you about me coming and speaking to you at this point, I was really so excited. Joyce, everyone, I didn't want to leave anybody's name name out. So it's really, really great to see you. And um, I commend you. Dr. Callender told me that you've moved forward on your app. And, uh, and I don't know what the update is, but uh, I understand that you did move forward on that. And congratulations on that. A true testament to the value of these support groups. And I was delighted when I came into the call to hear you guys talking about something about uh, 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 reported in the news. I remember that from my time of meeting with you, Carol, you made it very clear to me that uh, one of the things that was very important to you was to get the update, (laughs) get the update of the news item and to share with the group. That what that was a real real plus, and I really appreciate that because you kind of said it like so. We're proud. We're happy to have you, but we don't want you to take away from our <laughs> knowledge <laughs> session that we have, Dr. Calendar, because that's very important to me, and I really 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 appreciate that. Dr. Calendar also said to me, "I have 30 minutes." And he said, uh, "Say what you're going to say and leave what time we have." for interaction. So I really, really want to respect that. Now, John, are you the timekeeper? Are you the tech savvy one here? 
Uh, so uh, Clive or what have you, just give me, make sure I have a clock here on the, um, on the computer, but I'm not sure that I would be looking at it. But I do want to respect the time so that we can truly have that interaction. Um, that's really uh, the important part. Well, I, I have I have asked the Lord to speak to us <laughs> through you, so uh, uh, there's no no telling what the Lord will require of you. That means <laughs> what the Lord will require of you. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, thank you. Um, actually, it's interesting. I always have a regular weekly prayer, family prayer, with my sister on Wednesday. So yesterday, in our prayer time. I told her about my um, opportunity to speak to this group today. So she lifted up prayer for me, <laughs> for this group, that uh, I would stay on time. <laughs> and that uh, uh, the prayer is that as God blesses me to come and speak with groups, that I will be able to bring a message that uh, he gives to me. And that is my heart's desire, that what I have to say to you would be what he has given me to say to you, to make known, because this is my delight, to make known the mystery, the mystery of God in the genome, the mystery of God in the genome. He certainly blessed me, directed my course, allowed me to, go, to move through the academic pathway, and uh, to get this uh, PhD in human genetics at a time where this was not an area of investigation that was popularized, particularly in our community. And I, 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 I am pleased that the time that I came through, I didn't realize it till sometime later. In fact, I didn't realize it till even very recently that uh, I have the distinction of being the first African-American with a PhD in human genetics from a research university in the US, in the USA. And that was something that came up as we were looking for little bylines for the book that I'm writing. And, um, and so the person who is assisting me with editing and getting the book ready for publication said, we need a little distinguishing line that we can say about you that's very short and uh, uh, very to the point. And we had come up with um, the first African-American with a PhD in human genetics. So, which is really foundation of my career as a biomedical research scientist, which is what brought me to Howard, brought me to Dr. Callender Hook me up, that like he said, hook me up with Dr. Callender when I first came to Howard. In fact, <laughs> in fact, I was able to occupy the research laboratory in the Department of Surgery directly across from Dr. Callender's office, which put us right together from the very beginning. And, uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Callender being in transplant, it's more, it's more than coincident, Dr. Callender being a transplant surgeon and 
I was in the Department of Microbiology in the College of Medicine, which was in what we call the old medical school part, when the hospital, Howard University Hospital, first opened. And with its fabulous, at that time, uh, laboratories for research. So I had the distinction of occupying the research laboratory in the Department of Surgery, which was immediately across from Dr. Callender's office, which is an integral part of the story. Because my first research dealt with our identity, our identity, our biochemical identity, which was fundamental to transplant in terms of the transplant surgeon, very conscious of the research which showed that matching the donor and recipient for their tissue type was key to the success, long-term success of a transplant. And it turns out that the, the tissue type is a biochemical structure that is inherited. It is genetically determined. So each of us has a tissue type and that tissue type is unique to each individual. And that tissue type is key to the success of matching donor and recipient in long-term survival of uh, organ transplant. So um, that's part of the scientific base of Dr. Callender and I. Uh, coming together. And one, one thing that's also very key in the foundation, because I really want us to appreciate how God brought us together from, from the beginning, from my beginning at Howard, and ends up very much today. In fact, Dr. Callender and I are working today with the psychology department uh, that uh, you guys are very familiar with because I had the pleasure of, uh, of, of visiting your group when uh, um, the history of Dr. Callender bringing psychology to your support group and the importance of psychology to the physical health uh, uh, of, um, of, uh, uh, of the transplant recipient, John, gave a talk and um, I was very pleased to be there. It turns out that we are working, I'm continuing to work with Dr. Callender. In preparation for this talk, I actually sent you, and I hope you guys got it, as I sent it uh, last evening, but I sent you um, uh, uh, an attachment that contained a promo of a project that Dr. Callender and I are still working with involving engaging scientists in the science and religion dialogue. Uh, I'd like to just uh, uh, just confirm, did you guys get that attachment uh, to your email? Yes, we got the attachment and it's also in the chat room if you overlooked it on your email. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Uh, so I was wondering, I thought that's a very short promo, 
but I was hopeful in the time that I might use that as an intro to even where we are, especially how it relates to my continuing work with Dr. Callender and how that's really related right to this group and where um, the focus of my research is engaging scientists in the dialogue on science ethics. And this it's, it's, is a very short promo on this, this um, effort now at Howard. Um, so would it be possible, John, could we actually just play that very short promo? Um, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I, think you're, I think you're speaking of the YouTube videos. Right, right, right. Okay. The very first one. Okay, I was well, just I'm going to go to the chat room. And okay. um, for those who might for any reason not have had a chance to look at it. It's very short, but I'd like to use that as okay, an intro. Okay, hold on one second. Okay. And I'll see one. if I can. If I would ask everyone to um, mute, with the exception of Dr. Calder and Dr. Dunson, everybody else, if you would mute, that will help out pretty much. Mm -hmm. Okay, just one second. Okay. And I... Um, We'll just use that promo to relate to what we're doing at Howard now in terms of engaging scientists, which is really uh, an example of what we're doing here. Uh, yes, if you could just play that. In a little tent. Could you kind of... It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living. Good morning. Thank you again to our presenters, and I could not have picked a better roster myself. We don't have people in technology to advance the technology and even to deal with the existing technologies, then our viability as a nation is in question. And uh, yes, you can, you can hire a lot of foreign nationals, but if your own citizens are not engaged, then we've got, we've got all kinds of additional problems. We really brought it back to Howard University in 1973 and started the transplant program. We recognized that we needed to be doing something more to have a dialogue with the community and the patients. For our Divinity School faculty to pull on the sciences to help us create alternative modes for interpretation has shifted how we do divinity and how we think about theology. But here's the challenge for us in terms of Stanford research. We can't look at this in an isolated vacuum. We can't. We can't look at just religion and science as though the rest of the things which impacts our community are not important. That's what is distinctive about Howard, is that we come together across our different disciplines, and we make something new and something rich happen in this place. The whole scene is an imperial seeming to echo ancestral vibrations like let knowledge grow from more to less. 
more, but more of wisdom in us dwell, that mind and soul according well may make one music. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. I go to the movie and I go downtown. Okay. Okay, thank you, John. Uh, uh, I really appreciate that little promo. That actually, the whole we had a whole um, uh, program, and it is available on um, video. Uh, but I would just want to show that little promo because it connects actually the continuing interaction that I have had with Dr. Callender. We have shared not only our science but we have shared our faith and uh, uh, our shared faith in Jesus Christ as our savior and also the role of our faith and, and our uh, belief in God in the health of our body, which is very much a part of a paper that we are working on in Clive, <laughs> I, I think, um, uh, on an aside, I think uh, certainly the the paper is is certainly coming coming together, and I look forward to following up uh, with that today. But what I wanted to just say to this group is that um, transplant and your support group has a very special place in my history and in the message of the genome. You have a very special place in the, in, the, in the message of the genome to us at this time in that transplant is a clinical example of the importance of appreciating that our body knows itself. That, that one, I'd like to say that one of the first lessons we learn in life as biological being is the philosophical statement, know thyself. The first lesson that we learn is knowledge of ourself. And this is nowhere more strongly reflected than in the clinical practice of transplantation, where man's attempt to be, to assist in helping correct problems in the body uh, by, by taking organs that are damaged and replacing them with organs that uh, would, uh, uh, take, uh, would take care of the damaged organ. One of the first lessons we learned from the science is that before you can accomplish this good intent, this good effort, you must respect the fact that the body knows itself. And I want to just make the statement that while we have learned from transplant that the body knows itself biologically and will not accept that 
which is not uh, uh, akin to or identified with itself without. So we had to learn the knowledge of the system that is involved in this recognition and learn how to interface with it in a way that allowed the success of the transplant. I want to shift very quickly to Clyde bringing in, Dr. Callender bringing in the psychology, which brings in the role of the mind in our health. Psychology itself dealing with the psyche. Psychology as a science dealing with the science of the soul that we are created as unique souls, if you will. And each of us, our soul knows itself. God has blessed us that when he put together the human being and made him a living soul, according to scripture, each soul is unique with gifts and attributes that God has given each one of us. And we are now learning from psychology and research with the brain that this knowledge of who we are as unique souls is also very important to our health. The recognition that not only is our physical body knowledgeable of itself, but we have a unique soul that's knowledgeable of itself and that this soul is made in the image of God. And today in science, the forefront of science is recognizing that we need to have knowledge about the uniqueness of our identity as living souls, living entities, souls made in the image of God. And that knowledge is important in terms of the expression of health in our body. And that's, that's where the science comes together with addressing man's desire to have healthy bodies and live healthy, meaningful lives. And this science of the genome that I have been blessed to come along an academic path gives me an opportunity to talk to the community, to talk to each other, and to teach about the knowledge of our unique identity as souls and the role that the soul plays in health. The book that I am writing that I'm looking forward to coming out uh, um, this fall very soon. And I sent you also, I emailed you the preface the, for a page in the beginning of the book on my statement on my life story. If you have, um, if you, if you have a chance, please do read that. And actually, I share my motivation for writing this book, which uh, you may pursue questions about that uh, as as we talk later. But I actually talk about the desire that God gave me as an individual very early in life to know why he made me the way he made me. Three prevailing questions that have governed my life. Who am I? What am I? And why 
am I? I think these are questions that are common to all of us, to all humans. We want to know who we are. We want to know what we are. We want to know why. Why me? Why me? What's God, what was on God's mind in making me? Especially when we think about the fact that he has made each of us unique and he has given each of us unique aspects of his nature to express and share with each other. We each, that's our ultimate inheritance as living souls. We are our father. I love Christianity because it presents religion in the context of a family. That's what I love about Christianity, that it presents God and divinity and theology in the context of a family. And we all are parts of family. So we can use the family construct to teach about our own identity. identity. We can all relate to a family, you each of like us. That. How many times you got now? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, we pull them, we So every day I pull it. Somebody and has your mic on. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure who that is. So somebody has their mic on. Okay, now, I just I'm, wanted I'm to. Gonna all right. mute, I'm going to mute oh, everybody, and then too. I will have I you know, unmute. I'm some blood today. Okay. Okay. Now you can unmute. Okay. All right. So, uh, just to make that point, that I am excited as a genomicist that that we have what was called the Human Genome Project, which billions of dollars put into, tax dollars put into us uh, using science to unfold the architecture of our inheritance, which is this genome project. So we have literally in our hands what we today call big data. And, uh, and we live in a time where the buzzwords uh, in science are evidence-based. So we have to show evidence for what we claim. And so we're living in the day of big data. The sequencing of the genome made biology in the arena of big data. The areas of big data, before, uh, biology was not in that big data as physics. Physics, for example, was all uh, uh, big data physics how we know how we use physics to actually go to the moon and how the technology that developed in the science of physics has been very instrumental in putting satellites in space and collecting information from space about the earth chemistry was big data i remember when i was growing up the commercial on tv uh about chemistry being so important, everything being um, based on the chemistry. Chemistry dealt with big data, led to the whole drug industry that is a tremendous economic arena in our society. Well, sequencing the genome put the science of biology into this big data arena where we actually use tools of mathematics because the data, the numbers, are too, too much to deal with the little simple kind of mathematics that we dealt with, many of us, when we were in school. The numbers, the data is too great. We need 
developments in the science of mathematics to deal with this big data, to begin to look at the biology of what God has put together in this genome. The three eyes that I want you to keep in mind about the genome, three eyes, the genome is information. Our genome is information. It is an information, DNA is an information molecule, information on our identity and our inheritance. So those are my three eyes for the genome, information on identity and inheritance. And the challenge for us today, particularly black folk, is we need to deal with our image of who we are. We have come up in a culture where our image of who we are has tainted our belief in our identity. And now we need science to begin to correct the ignorance, basically the ignorance, which is the term that I'm using for lack of knowledge of the truth. And those of us who are students of the Bible and Christian, we know that. There is a very famous uh, scripture where God speaks about, the scripture says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. My people perish. I look at health disparities and the issues that we are dealing with in our health condition as a consequence of a lack of knowledge, particularly a lack of knowledge of who we are a lack of knowledge of who we are impacts how our brain functions because our belief is fundamental to the life we live. You cannot separate what you believe. We are, we are naturally creative. God made us such that we could experience what we believe. So it becomes very important. What do you believe is the truth? about who you are because you cannot live outside of your truth. And that's what the science is bringing today, tools and techniques for us to use science, to use big data. For the same reason, I like to say that Jesus appeared to Thomas who doubted that he had risen as he said he would. Thomas, like the true scientist said, I won't believe until I can put my finger in the wound, until I see the nail prints in the hand. And Jesus in his compassion came right through the wall after his rather walked through the wall, stood right before Thomas. Okay, Thomas, go ahead, put your finger in the wound. But then he challenged him. He said, now believe, believe, because you have been created in such a way that you can't live outside of your beliefs. So blessed are those who can believe my word because of I said it, as opposed to those who want to make their own self the reference for what is real. Thomas then said, my Lord and my God. And that's where I would kind of want to throw the point to us. Science now comes 
with what I like to call big data, bringing evidence that we are spiritual beings, just as we were taught in our ancestry history. We are spiritual beings with a soul, a soul that's made in the image of God, a soul that has the knowledge of how to make and operate the mind and the body. But unless we believe, we cannot enter into the inheritance that is what science comes as Jesus and say, look at the data, look at the evidence, but now believe for you to move into the life that is your inheritance that I made possible. If you can believe that your stomach knows how to digest food without you teaching it, your eyes know how to see without you teaching them, your ears know how to hear how without you, your soul has knowledge of your identity that you have to believe in order to move into the inheritance, the full inheritance. And one product of that belief is health and wholeness. Jesus was known as the great physician. He dealt with healing. And so as we as a support group come together to look at what the science is revealing and what is the knowledge, but we have to be very, very careful. We have to be very careful because uh, social media and the source of your information is key today and nowhere is that more evident than what we are looking at today. What's the source of the information that you are believing? Because you can't change how belief relates to your health. So you have to look at the source of your information, the source of your knowledge. And uh, that's what I appreciate about this group that Dr. Callender has brought together. And I'm really excited about what you're doing and what you have done. And so I kind of wanted to just kind of throw it open here that is our image of ourselves as a people, African-Americans, and as individuals, souls made in the image of God that determines the quality of our life where health is a big component. And then God has given us the tools and the techniques to be able to use science to use science that we might believe the truth and inherit the fullness of life that's already part of our inheritance when we operate by the truth. That's my kind of concluding statement. The genome knows how to receive truth and then use that truth as food. I like to equate it to uh, Matthew 4, 4, where Jesus said, where the message is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. So it's important for us to appreciate that the word of God is nutrient for life, for the life that he brings, which I like to call e-life. In science, we refer to that 
as electronic life because we're at the nano level where we're looking at the life of the electron, the subparticle part of an atom. And we're looking at how electrons relate to each other and underlies the chemistry that is the foundation of biology. And this chemistry follows laws of life that's reflected in the mathematics of life. But it is our opportunity to see this exquisite being that we are and that this information is loaded in our genome and the genome already knows by evidence of science, we all begin from one genome one complete set of instructions for making and operating the human body. We get one complete set from our mother in the egg and one complete set from our father in the sperm. We each begin life as a single cell with two complete sets of instructions in our genome for not only making, but for operating the human body. And this is what's reflected in the health that we are studying. And we're at the precipice of that. And it is my delight to share whatever information I can that you are interested in relative to this. I think that's my 30 minutes. Dr. Dunstan, I'd like to start off with a question. And I'm so happy about your study from the beginning all the way to the end. And I know that you have had some rough roads to go through to get to where you are and the state of your project. You know, my question has to do with the fact that I know that a whole lot of scientists are not religious, so to speak. And some of them, I will go so far as to say they might be even atheists. So tell me about some of those battles that you have had, <laughs> that you've had to go through working with scientists who really believe in science, but they don't believe in God. Mm. I really thank you for that question. And that's a, that's a very key question and one that I'm often challenged with, particularly I share that uh, uh, I, I was blessed to get the Just Award, and which is a, an award by the by, uh, in, by Biological Society. And um, when I gave when I, I gave the talk for that award, one of the questions very much in line with your question that I remember from early childhood, and often comes to me: How in the world <laughs> did you? a black woman <laughs> how is it that you even were knew about or interested in a phd in human genetics i mean how did that happen surely you came up during a time where we knew how genetics was being used to manipulate and and exploit us as a people few of us um, have not heard of certainly about the Tuskegee uh, uh, story with, um, with syphilis. And more recently, there have been a number of stories, some of which include even 
the immortal life of Henrietta Lack, the whole story of the healer cell uh, coming from a black woman, uh, cancer. So this question of, of uh, first of all, how in the world did you even get in this area? And I have to say that I have known from day one, from the very path, that it had to be God <laughs> that put the question in my mind about who I am and why he made me the way he made me. And it was rooted in my church history because I learned in Sunday school way before I did any kind of biological studies in school or in college, I learned in Sunday school that Jesus loves me. <laughs> this I know. I learned that I was a child of God. And I learned that we are all children of God and that God loves all of us the same. But I also grew up in the segregated South. I grew up with segregated schools. I grew up in segregated communities. I grew up and I had questions to my Sunday school teacher, to certainly my pastor, and I carried those questions to my school teachers. If God loves all of his children the same, why does he seem to treat some of his children better than others? I had that question for God. I had that question for my Sunday school teacher. Look to me like God loves his white children a little bit better <laughs> than he loves his black children. Because we getting a whole lot of trouble down here because I was doing the time where the segregation of schools, it was my class that was bust and desegregated in my area where I was. I wasn't bust, but that was my class that some were bust. So I was having some conflict with my Sunday school lessons and my life lessons. <laughs> And I would just ask my mom, I would ask my teachers, and I love to tell the story, true story. I would ask my mom, mom, why did God make me a, a black girl? Why did he give me kinky hair? Why he give <laughs> me a, 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 a wide nose? Everything that society was saying was not the prim features of the desired beautiful child and woman, you know? I want to know if God loves me, why he give me these things that are so unlovely, if you will. Uh, uh, Dr. Dunster, there's a hand up. Okay. Let, let her finish, please. Let me, yeah, let me just let close this piece, okay? And I said to my mom, why, why, why? Why God made me? Why he gave me this? Why he didn't give me this? Why this? One day out of sheer exasperation, and it truly was sheer exasperation. I can hear her now. My mom said to me, Georgia May, I don't know why God made you the way he made you. I don't know why he made you colored. We had some crazy stories that were being told about God, how he made all of his children and some 
us and made he when he was making us and he cooked us and he put us in the oven and we were cookies and we buried we stayed in the oven a little longer so we buried. but my mama would always say but these things were good but my point was i actually took to heart what my mother said you ask god you ask god why he made you the, may he, the way he made you. And that's what I did as a child. As a child, I asked God, God, why did you make me the way you made me? How does how you made me show your love for me? <laughs> Help me understand your love the same for all of us. And yet we being treated differently. And I can say to you that my whole path from preschool, from preschool to elementary school, junior high, high school, college, BS, graduate school, MS, PhD, postdoctorate has been an academic path of God answering the question till he brings me to this point where he unfolds the genome as a scientific resource for what I am, how I am made. And now he's dealing with me with the why, the why. Science does not answer why. Science can answer how and what, but science cannot answer why. Only God can answer why he made each of us the way he made us. And that answer is, and I submit to you, and that's coming out now in work that Dr. Callender has been pursuing as part of his life with our psychology group, where he has led us to a point right now that answers that question of why, which is to show his love, to show his love, his love, his love, not our kind of love, but to show his love as being love itself, the very nature of God being love. He made us unique unique and individual so he could show us how much he loves each one of us. And he's made no mistakes in anything he has done for each one of us. And for our discovery of his love, reflected in everything that we have experienced. And that's been the story of my life, discovering God's love in my skin color, discovering God's love in my hair texture, discovering God's love in my anatomical features. I can look back now and see how certain anatomical features were part of positive and negative relationships that I had. And the truth is, had some of those relationships that I wanted my features to be different have come out, it would have been a very different life for me. So I'm basically saying, yes, John, there has been pushback from science because science in its purest form is a search for truth. Science in its purest form is a search for truth, but science does recognize <laughs> Science does recognize that it's always an approximation, uh, but never the sense, this thing itself.
keep in mind that science measures. The very nature of science measures. And how can you measure the immeasurable? So science is limited. I know that science is incapable as a discipline in doing what it desires to do. So it has been a problem for me because I see God bringing science and my faith and spirituality together. God is actually using the science now to for us to believe, if I tie that to the Thomas. God is coming right through science, coming right through the wall, standing right before us and saying, look at the data, look at the big data, look at the evidence, but now believe because you can't live the life that I planned for you except you believe. And that's why Jesus said, if thou canst believe, you must believe the way we are made God has created us with a belief system that's part of our creative construct. And you must be able to image, you must be able to vision. That's why the scriptures say, without a vision, the people perish. God has given us a brain that needs images in order to be an important step in the creative process. And how it's going to differ is we now, groups just like yours, we show through evidence that the truth is as the word says. And people, just like Thomas, when we give the evidence through science, we too will say, my Lord and my God. And that's where we're moving through our own witness and testimony. We will show heaven on earth moving through the science that is emerging now, where we actually can use our faith to extract from the spiritual realm the answers that we need to solve problems on the physical realm. And God made us to be a part of this time, this generation, demonstrating heaven on earth. And so I'm excited about our group because I no longer try to prove to my colleagues, it's not an argument. In the arena of debate, the intellectual arena, they exceed me. I mean, the world has a monopoly on the intellect, but we need to shift to the spirit where there is no contest between light and darkness. Light does not battle with darkness. All light has to do is show up and their darkness is no more. So as we move into the truth, the truth is what sets us free. As we have learned in our scripture, you shall know the truth and the truth obliterates the ignorance that comes from our perception of reality. And these things that are negative that occur particularly our health, I do believe that God is coming right through us, dealing with issues of health disparities, criminal injustice. He's coming right in the midst of our system. And for those of us who believe, he is providing solutions. He is providing answers to the problem. We are the problem solvers for our time. We have the wisdom 
and we have the knowledge to solve problems as evidence that the truth is the reality. So, um, John, yes, I do have pushback, but I'm excited about coming at a time where I believe God is using science, which we believe in as a people. We even have our president and, and uh, we mouth the words, we're gonna follow the science. We're gonna follow the science. So God said, that's fine. I'll use the science to show what the truth is. And that's our inheritance. And that's what we can demonstrate by taking any problem, any problem we are dealing with, any problem, it doesn't matter. If it's a problem, God has already equipped you to be a solution. You cannot recognize a problem that you are not already equipped to solve to his glory. And that's kind of what my book addresses the soul in, in that regard. Okay, uh, there was another question. Yeah, yeah. and uh, by the way, Dr. Dunson, I, I didn't mean to interrupt earlier, and I was aware that you had not come to the conclusion of your answer, but I mentioned that there was a hand up just in case you were not able to uh, look at the and participants list and see when hands are up. So and sorry I don't. about that. No, yeah. no problem. And I okay. can't. I don't see the hands up. Okay. So I yeah, need that. I was that. just making okay. you aware of that. I didn't mean sure. to interrupt. And I knew that you had come to the conclusion of your answer. So I'm sorry about that. No problem. But anyway, yeah, mm -hmm. there. if you put your participants list up, then you can see when hands are raised. And I see that uh, Daryl Armistead has his hand up. So go forth, Daryl. Okay. Hi, Dr. Dustin. I have a question about what practices can strengthen telomeres. And uh, and that's and I ask that because I know that weakened tele telomeres accelerate mm -hmm. the aging process. Mm-hmm. 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 Very uh, insightful question. And uh, your question is what can be done to uh, keep the telomeres from uh, shortening? I mean, what, what, state your question to me again. Yeah, uh, what I mm -hmm. said, uh, what practice can strengthen the telomeres? And, and mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean exactly that to keep mm -hmm. them shortening mm -hmm. as they shorten. Yeah. Um, DNA yes. gets linked out, possible mm -hmm. DNA mm -hmm. strands confused with mm -hmm. other DNA strands, mm -hmm. uh, gives bad mm -hmm. information to cellular regeneration. And so yeah. uh, you have cell mm -hmm. cellular degeneration as a result of shortened telomeres. Are there any practices that can keep our telomeres strong? and reduce the, um, the aging process mm -hmm. accelerating um, as it would naturally. Yeah, that's like I said, that's a very insightful question. It shows that you really are right on the front line of some of the science in this area. So thank you for the question. I am not an expert in telomeres. My knowledge is very much on the line of yours. I'm just knowledgeable of what's been reported that telomere shortening has been associated with aging. And also aging has been associated with several of the health uh, consequences that are associated with aging. I do not, I know that there is a lot of work on telom <clears throat> telomeres and there are investigators who's looking at 
Are there nutrients or are there any kinds of um, certainly um, uh, chemicals that can be uh, administered to keep telomeres from shortening since, as you know, it's the shortening of the telomeres that's been associated with aging. So your question being, do we know anything we can do to keep telomeres from shortening? My short answer is I do not know anything specific. It's not an area that I have the detail, but the beauty of our time that we are living in is you can certainly Google and you can certainly just look for the latest on uh, therapies or therapeutics or, or what's the latest in terms of methodologies for telomere uh, control and regulation. I don't have that specific information, but it's certainly an active area of scientific investigation because of our knowledge that telomere shortening has definitely been associated. Uh, and for those that might be not familiar with the term, the telomere, the ends of our chromosomes, the cap, the ends of our chromosome, there's data to show that that with aging, we have the shortening of the chromosome. And there have been studies, certainly uh, in, 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 in various diseases and cancers in particular, because cancer is a genetic disease of the cell. And as Daryl has indicated, uh, telomere's research has been associated with cell regeneration and proliferation. And it's an active area, but I can't give you specific on what we can do right now to uh, avoid that. Uh, we certainly have recognized that there are things that seem to increase the shortening, which, is, which then is associated with the death, death. So I would have to refer you to the literature and the experts on what's the latest in this regard. But you stay on top of it because the knowledge of it is the beginning of then what you can do consciously. My focus is really uh, our consciousness or our awareness. And it's this day and time, our word is woke. So uh, our wokeness to uh, the knowledge of, uh, in this case, telomere shortening. So I'm sorry, I can't give you any specifics there. Okay, well, kind of a follow-up question to that. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some genetic expressions that, uh, oh, let's see, some things like uh, telomerase, mm -hmm. telomerase. Mm -hmm. that um, that promotes our production of the, of the telomeres, but it generally turns off during childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Things like lactase for uh, mm -hmm. non-Caucasians <laughs> during childhood. Are there any mm -hmm. examples of genetic expressions that mm -hmm. uh, can be turned on later on through genetic manipulation? Like once they're turned off, uh, mm -hmm. can they be later turned on through any genetic manipulation? Again, that's right on, Daryl, your question, because I'm sure that by asking that question, you know that this whole arena now of what we call genome editing or our ability to, to actually make changes in the DNA sequence. And with regard to telomerase, which is an enzyme and that is involved, and an enzyme is a protein 
and protein structure is coded for by genes. And so indeed, we have found we can map the genes that are involved in making the protein telomerase, knowing that telomerase is an enzyme that is involved in telomere lengthening. Now, the genetics of this is interesting because this is my this is the aspect that I look at. I look at variation in genes. I'm particularly interested in, in variations in African-Americans. So one of the questions that I would ask is to what extent is variation in the gene that makes the telomerase, is it related to the functioning of the telomerase in telomere lengthening? In other words, we know that there are variations in the protein, but we don't necessarily know how that variation um, affects the functioning of that protein. We know that some variation may actually affect the functioning, in which case that could tie directly to what you're asking, how genetics might be used. For example, let's say we, we map the gene and we look at the structure of the protein and we look at then how the amino acids for, uh, are placed around the function of that telomerase. Now, if you happen to get a variant uh, and that's inherited in an amino acid that affects the functioning of that telomerase, we have now to do research to see is that variant associated with telomerase lengthening or shortening or could it be related to aging? Could it be that persons who inherit this variant might have an activity of the telomerase that can be associated with aging? To me, that's an exciting question. That's, that's really how I use the power of variation in Black folk. Black folk are the best to study genetics because of our variation. And we need the variation to be able to understand the functioning. So I'm saying to you, you're right on with the question of variation because once we see if a variant affects the function, now we have techniques in gene editing uh, that we can go in and literally clip out a nucleotide and switch out a nucleotide that will be part of making an amino acid that would be put in the protein that we have now shown through science is associated with the functioning of the enzyme. Does that make, do you follow what I'm saying? Also, I would add also, I would add also that uh, there's evidence that uh, mm -hmm. exercise and meditation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, along with the fact that we also have identified some new compounds, sulfide compounds, which actually lengthen the telomeres. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I would, want us to get our hopes up too much because uh, basically we were born to die. And so we might lengthen our lives for a period of time, which is okay, but we're not gonna live forever on, without Jesus Christ, which <laughs> offers us eternal life. How about uh, that? <laughs> anyway, that's my comment. You know, I just want to just... lobster because the lobsters, uh, they <laughs> continue to ge generate telomerase throughout their lifetimes. They might mm -hmm. die for other reasons, uh, like mm -hmm. from their exoskeletons when they fail to molt. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, mm-hmm. they do produce telomerize for their uh, entire lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's the exciting part, I would say, of genetics because we can look at uh, uh, organisms um, that have um, different functional activities, just like you say, the lobster, um, um, the longevity, and, associ- and ask the question, is that associated with telomerase, telomerase uh, shortening, telomere shortening in the lobster? And if the data show, yes, the lobster shows that they their telomerase doesn't shorten, we can look at the enzyme in the lobster and ask how that enzyme in the lobster differs from our enzyme. And now we have the technology to ask the question, do we want to make our telomerase like the lobster's telomerase, which we have the technology to do. But now you come right to where my area of investigation, genomics has raised tremendous questions. We have the technology, but do we have the ethics? That's kind of coming back to even Dr. Callender's point. The whole interface now of religion and science. Science is bringing us to the place where we have knowledge of what we can do to change the gene. But do we have knowledge of what kind of changes in our gene are actually good for our health, if you will? Because the genome was put together to work as a whole unit together. I don't know how changing our telomerase to the lobster telomerase, it might keep our telomerase from shortening, but what else might it upset? We don't know, but those are the kinds of ethical questions that are coming up with the genetic and the genomic knowledge. We have the technology to make changes but do we have the knowledge of what kind of changes, particular in our genome, is, is, is compatible with the life that has been planned for us? Well, I understand you to say there's greater genetic variation among Black people than other races. Okay, and also I got this thing about races. Uh, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. I like to think of us as populations because population is more a biological term that deals with our genome in the context of our environment. Uh, the idea of human races is a European construct uh, that's been based on superficial characteristics that are not genetically grounded. So the point that I'm trying to make is, and first of all, the genome does not line up with our superficial constructs of race. There is no underlying genetics that's one-to-one with our racial constructs. And there's there no genome that's true for all black folk that's not true for white folk or yellow or red or however you want to group us. But suffice it to say that African people, the genome is rooted in human origins. And the genome provides data that African people represents the antiquity of humanity. In other words, that African people contain the broadest spectrum 
of variation, which would be the case of our origins. Humankind having its origins in Africa. As humans moved out of Africa, they took with them, those that moved out took a portion of the genetic variation that was part of the base. So once the humans moved out to other parts in other of the world and in other environments, the genome continued to adapt us for survival in whatever environment we're in. And that variation is reflected in the genomic variation. So the statement that I made, when we look at the genome sequence data, I love to give these statistics. When the genome was sequenced, nucleotide for nucleotide for the 3 billion nucleotides, the data showed that the amount of our genomic knowledge that was required to account for all the differences that we see in the superficial constructs of race, in other words, uh, skin color, anatomical feature, texture, hair texture, all of the things on the surface that we use that account for all the differences that we put ourselves into different racial groups based on continental origin. We find that that takes, uh, if you haven't heard it before, hold on to your seat. It takes less than one-tenth, one-tenth of one percent of our total genome inheritance to account for all the differences we see on the surface. Less than a tenth of 1% of our total genome is all that it takes for accounting for the dif differences we see on the surface. If you consider the differences on the inside, we can't see, we got different organs. We got kidneys, liver, pancreas, inside. If we account for differences between the outside and the inside, the, D, the genome data show that's less than 2%, less than 2% to make all the proteins, if you will, that are the workhorses of the cells from making the cells. Less than 2% of, that was one of the first questions as a Christian, I had a question as a genomicist, if, if it only takes 2% or less of our total genome to make for all of the seen differences, shall I say, inside and out, what's the rest of this exquisite genome that God has gifted us with? What is it doing? And I would say to you, we are learning, we, have, we are learning that most of this genome, a good portion of this genome is involved in control and regulation. So I like to say it takes most of our inheritance to control and regulate the least of our inheritance in terms of what we see. So the invisible, again, a philosophical principle, the invisible or the unseen portion of the genome controlling and regulating the seen portion, which is the visible portion in and out. So that's a, a truism that we are dealing with. So that's why I say, hey, let's think about the ethics before we use our knowledge of tinkering with the genome to go in and change something when we know so little about 
how that change impacts the operation of the rest of the genome. Hmm? Yeah, I got to yeah. say, uh, you know, we talk about how little variation there is between different human population groups. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. at one tenth of like point one. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just reading uh, on the internet that humans and chimps share a surprising 98.8% .8 of yes, it. 98.8, yes, yeah. yes. You know, yes. I mean, sometimes numbers can be misleading. There's not a <laughs> lot of difference number-wise between humans and chimps, but we know mm -hmm. that big difference. We're not chimps. We know that, but our, our statement of they're not big difference, that's a perspective. That depends on what you are basing, what you are similar to. When you say we're, we're not, no, we're not chimps. But from a point of view of making a living, operating uh, uh, entity, in case the chip and the man, it's kind of saying that the knowledge that is needed for making a chimp versus a man <laughs> quantitatively is not that much of a difference. However, what we don't know, and this is the point that I was trying to make about thinking about the ethics of making changes before, because the genome tells us that while the numbers may not be great, relationship is the key. And that's what the genome teaches us about life. It is our relationships that make the difference. It's the relationship of one nucleotide to the next. In other words, we might have a single nucleotide difference, but that single nucleotide next to a G, shall I say, versus next to a C, we don't know the full ramification of the context. And that's true for even what we're studying in life. We don't put a lot of emphasis on the context or the role that the environment, the surrounding case, if you will, it plays in what you're seeing and what you're measuring. And we are just beginning to really respect the role that the environment, whether it's your, your psychological environment or your physical environment, we are just beginning to appreciate the role that the context that the environment plays in what you see. Excuse and that's me. excuse me for interrupting again. And yes. I know that maybe you have not finished your answer, but I wanted to let Daryl know that um, his sound is going up and down and it's hard to hear um, your questions and you've asked several. So I wanted to interrupt again and let Dr. Dunson know that there is another hand up. Okay, Daryl, have we taken enough on telomerase and uh, the variation? So you're right. The quantitative difference may be small, <clears throat> but we don't fully appreciate the relational difference of that one change, which we don't have knowledge about. The context the surrounding environment, what role does that play in what you are actually seeing? Um, so uh, that's yet, that's a big area of, of scientific exploration. What role does who's sitting next to you play in how you behave? That's right. science too. But we do know that there is nothing coincidental about 
social relationships. And we don't fully appreciate how our brain waves actually are not terminated at the boundary of the skin. So we have a lot to learn about, like I said, our relationship, who we interact with, who we live with, how that's influencing our behavior, which is directly related to health. In fact, we know very well from science that behavior is the major determinant of health disparity, behavior. The choices we make about decisions about how we live our life, what we're gonna eat, how we're going to behave, exercise, where we're going to enjoy ourselves, behavior. Those are choices that we make that are tied to our access as well as our knowledge. But we are learning that behavior is a major determinant of health. Buchanan's uh, will be the last question before we change. Okay. Okay. Dr. Duncan, right. I, yes. I, I want to thank you for your, for your, your sharing, your great knowledge. I had a, a question about one of the topics that we have focused on a lot, and that's the, uh, the coronavirus mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. the uh, messenger mm -hmm. RNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, this seems to be like right up the alley of what we're mm -hmm. talking about, changes that <laughs> we are uh, introducing into our, you know, changing mm -hmm. our, our immune system with this vaccination. I um I believe in it. I believe mm -hmm. that it's uh, that it's good. But as you are are bringing up this uh, this idea mm -hmm. of, do we really know about uh, the ramifications, the long term ramifications of of these types of, of changes? And uh, I I have friends that refuse to get vaccines because of fear or other, you know, not knowing what the long-term uh, results are going to be. What, what, mm -hmm. What's your take on, on the uh, coronavirus messenger RNA type mm -hmm. of uh, mm -hmm. changes that we're making? John, thank you. Thank you again for that question. I just have to be very vigilant with Dr. Callender's group. I'm telling you, I know he keeps you guys up with uh, with the discussions uh, uh, in the media. That's a very, as you know, a question that's taken a lot of attention uh, in, in particular in, in social media. Your question is very on point. And keep in mind the nature of science. And I think this is true for even how we, um, uh, uh, Fauci's comments. Science goes with the evidence, the data that it has. And one aspect of science, it is very adaptable or it is allowed to change as new evidence is accumulated. So it is very true that our knowledge of vaccination has is, is, is such that the use of the vaccine and the recommendation for vaccination is based on the knowledge that we currently have. And these vaccines are approved knowing that they are approved to use for the evidence of what they can do right now in terms of stemming uh, hospitalization and deaths. And what, there's evidence right now that that's a benefit of the vaccination. 
but you get to the heart of what we've been saying, what I want to say about genomics. We don't have the evidence. The evidence is not yet in on the long-term effects of this new technology of RNA use, because we do know that RNA is an information molecule. I don't know the status of the data in terms of what do we know even about variation in people. We do know that people respond differently. Certainly vaccination is like our response to any foreign material to go back to our earlier discussion of transplant. People respond differently based on the makeup of our immune system. And it can vary from what vaccine you get, where it's administered, how much is administered, and uh, will impact differences among people. So my short answer is we don't yet have the data to be hard-nosed about a forever a benefit in the long, because the data are not in yet. Certainly there is reason to be open and to use science, which means to collect the data. To use science means collect the data. That's what's on, collect the data. What's the evidence? As the data come in, obviously we'll be able to look to see variation in the population in response to the RNA. And you'll be able to see some individuals may actually have a response that, that teaches us things about the RNA vaccine that we don't have the data, we don't have the numbers yet because we don't have the experience to know that a hand science moves according to its growth in knowledge and it is ready to make adjustments. The beauty of science is that it anticipates, it allows you to anticipate what may be consequences and begin to already be preparing. That's what's happening even with the new variants, for example. Our, um, that as we see new variants of the coronavirus, the virus is a life form. It's trying to do just what we're doing. It's trying to survive. And one of its key strengths in survival is its capacity to vary. And in that variant, we find that the Delta variant, for example, is more transmissible and it has uh, uh, the virus has found a way to kind of keep itself going however we also have technology to anticipate what those variants are and to be able to develop therapeutics <clears throat> that will counter those variants so it's a struggle if you will uh, for survival between one life form and another. I would say to you, based on the data, and this is the science, based on the data, the benefits, all we do in science is we look at risk benefits. The benefits of being vaccinated right now outweigh the risk, but the decision as to what the long-term effect, I personally don't go along with some of the wild conspiracy theories about the vaccination. I have some problems that I believe a lot of has been politicized 
for the plus and minus, minus of how it's being politicized, in other words. But I can tell you, there is no RNA vaccine that can target Black people only. <laughs> there is no RNA back that can a target that knows that this person is black and can go in and change their DNA and not, and not be used uh, in other folk because that's not the nature of the genome. That's not the nature of the genome. It does not target. The beauty of how we're looking at genomics in this area where we're using theoretical physics and looking at the physics of the genome is that um, we tend to, based on race and surface, we group people according to shared characteristics. And then we lump all people together as if the shared characteristic identifies them. So that's how we got in, in medicine, how we got into this race-based medicine as a problem. Because we know that drugs, for example, have, they are chemicals and they have an effectiveness that we can use science as to the effectiveness of the drug at the chemical level. And we have come up with this idea that there are some drugs that are targeted just for black folk. No, drugs cannot single out black folk because all black folk do not have, for the same reason I said earlier, tremendous variation in the group. We know because Blacks have the broadest spectrum of variation, there are some Blacks, one Black at one end of the spectrum can be more different than another Black at the other end of the spectrum. And certainly each of those Blacks could easily be genetically more similar to a white person, if you will, or an Indian than they would be to another black. So genetics does not line up along these racial groups. And vaccinations are biological entities and that their effect will be based on the individual and not the racial group. I can say that. I Thank you very that. much, Dr. Dunstan. And uh, I think we are deeply indebted to you for a uh, unique presentation that uh, is non-parallel. And uh, with that, uh, I want to thank you very much for, for broadening our horizons and our knowledge. And I uh, appreciate it very much. And uh, with that, uh, well, I think let me just say, yeah, let thank me, you, Dr. Dunsey. Let me thank you all again. You can see that uh, I, I, this, I think I really appreciate this group. I did send, uh, I emailed you another uh, statement on my life story. And I like the idea that uh, I have written this poem aligned with uh, James Cleveland. If you get a chance to read James Cleveland, um, the best thing that ever happened to me, the best thing that ever happened to me. And I can hear Gladys Knight singing it in the background as I read it. So I wanna encourage you to look at that attachment I sent you of uh, my life story that's kind of written in the, in the lyrics of the best thing that's ever happened to me. Certainly the knowledge of Christ in us and our identity with Christ as part of our faith base is the best thing. Christ in us is more, I can say it's the genome on steroids.
Okay. <laughs> this genome in us is just a physical level, but Christ in us is the spiritual level. And if you get excited about any of what the science is telling us about the genome and, and its role in health and disease, Christ in us and our capacity to identify with Christ in us, I like to say it's the genome on steroids because it is the knowledge and the truth of our identity. And as transplant support group, knowing who you are is key to our health. So our capacity to know who we are in Christ is the key to our inheritance as children of God, sons and daughters of the most high God and claiming and living in the truth of our inheritance. So thank you for this opportunity to share my faith as well as my science. You're really special to me. May God continue to bless you guys as you pursue your interaction. Relationships are important. Thank you, Dr. Callender. Okay, thank you. Thank you, John. Much. Thank you, okay. John. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to uh, just share something with the group before we leave. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Um, we've talked about uh, reading books, magazines, newspapers, writing letters, playing game, card games, board games, checkers, chess. Uh, what's your guess? as to how long these things will delay the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's. Any, tell me how many days, weeks, months, years you think that will delay the onset of dementia? 11 and a half years. How long? 11 and a half years. Okay, okay that's it. one answer. Any Five other answers? How long? Five. Okay, any other answers? <laughs> I'd say 10. Okay. Any other answers? Might be 10. The evidence <laughs> is that, and they did this study on uh, about 2,000 people who were over 80. Okay. And they found that doing these activities will keep your brain active in life mm. five years longer than, and the evidence was that <laughs> when they took Okay, people, <laughs> people who are 80, and they uh, looked at those who involved themselves with these brain activities uh, who were in the 80s at the age of 89 mm. uh, for some. Uh, most of it occurred on an average of 84 for people who did the most brain simulating activity and 89 for those with the least amount. So it's at least five years uh, advantage. Uh, so, so Ted, keep on playing your chess. <laughs> I will okay. do that, sir. I will do that. What about solitaire? <laughs> well, that's the card, card games. You remember we mentioned that's my the uh, card games, checkers, puzzles, um, <laughs> puzzles, all of those uh, reading books, magazines, mm -hmm. all of those are uh, newspapers, writing letters, all of those are part of brain activities all that right. will delay the onset of dementia. And of course, the most common 
dementia is Alzheimer's. So I want you to know that that five years truly was a lucky guess. <laughs> <laughs> what was what did you say about the five years? I said it was truly just a lucky guess. <laughs> yeah, Betty it was right it. on. Yeah, she right on. Okay, right on, right all on. right, Dr. Callender. I'm uh, uh, just the soapbox. Uh, you know that uh, we are be one of our investigators, um, a physicist, is looking at uh, Alzheimer's disease, and we uh, are very interested in recruiting participants across different uh, uh, ethnic groups. So this group, I'm so excited about this support group. So maybe coming back to you to see if you're interested in being a part of studies that we will conduct out of Howard that's really looking at things like the telomere shortening that you uh -huh. raised, Daryl, uh, Alzheimer's disease that uh, Dr. Callender, this is really, really good. But to be able to talk to you guys about what's happening in the genomics world and how we are tying it to everyday life is what I find exciting about uh, this group, Dr. Callen. Thank you for the great work that you do. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, so we'll see all of you next and week. Wait and look for my book. I want you guys to get my book. We'll be coming out on Soul Genomics, S-O-U-L Genomics, where I'm actually showing how the science speaks about our soul made in the image of God, has the knowledge and wisdom for making and operating our mind and our body. And the secrets to all these questions that you are asking are just going to scratch the surface as we delve into soul genomics out, coming out of Howard University. All right. Okay. I want to give you an information also that uh, John Robinson's funeral is actually tomorrow, but it's oh private. My. It's I private. Just... It's by invitation only. So. But, but that's all, John. That's yeah, all, John. Yeah, John. That's all in the newspaper. Oh my. It was in the paper. Yeah.